I want to ask a question of you before we, as we begin. I want to ask you to take a moment just to think carefully. What's the hardest thing that you are facing in your life right now? What's causing you the most heartache? Perhaps scaring you the most? Troubling you the most? What's the hardest thing that you are facing in your life just now? Maybe it's only recent. Maybe it's been present for a long time. But I want you to identify in your heart and your mind just now the hardest thing in your life right now. Because this morning, God wants to speak to you about it. So how about we pray? Heavenly Father, it's true that sometimes darkness seems to veil your face. But Father, we want to be people whose hope is built on the righteousness of Christ, on the solid ground that Jesus has laid for us. Father, we come to you this morning admitting that... uh, Life is hard, and we're grateful that you know that. But we want to begin, Father, by confessing that sometimes our response to the hardships of life is less than what you would call us uh, to respond. Father, there are times in which our hardship in life brings out the worst in us. Sometimes, Father, we're just confused. Oftentimes, Father, we make foolish choices in the midst of our hardships. And so we thank you, Father, that in your word you speak to us. And we thank you that this morning you speak to us concerning the hardships we're facing. And, Father, as we're thinking about that one hardship at the moment, the hardest thing, Pray, Father, that you'd help us to keep that in mind. But uh, that, Father, as we hear you address us from your word, that you teach us some truths about that hardest thing at the moment and that you call forth from us a right response to it. We trust you. We know that you've given us the Lord Jesus. You've not spared even your very best. And, Father, we need your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, folks, today we begin, as Anton said, a new teaching series from the letter of James. Um, And James chapters 1 and 2 is our our focus in this series. The book is called James because that's who wrote it. He tells us that in verse 1 of chapter 1. And it seems pretty certain that this James was the earthly brother of the Lord Jesus. Um, You may not realise... But Jesus, in fact, had four brothers and at least two sisters, which means that if Jesus was born in our time, then his family would have definitely driven around in a Tarago. <laughs> it seems from the Gospels that for most of uh, Jesus' ministry, uh, his family didn't believe in him. In fact, they thought he was out of his mind. He embarrassed them with his outrageous claims and his teachings. 
But within weeks of his resurrection, they were believers. The resurrected Jesus, in fact, appeared to James and James became, in turn, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And we can read about him in the book of Acts. But it's interesting and significant, I think, that when James comes to write his letter, he makes no claim about earthly connections to Jesus. He makes no claims of any earthly authority that he might have. The James who writes this letter describes himself there in verse 1, doesn't he? Simply and profoundly as a servant of God and a servant of his Lord, Jesus Christ. And he writes to brothers and sisters, he says, who are scattered among the nations. Brothers and sisters who are doing it tough. Brothers and sisters facing hardship. All of which I think makes his opening command very striking indeed. It's the heart of our passage really today is the command there of verse 2. And let's read it. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. It's a straightforward command, but it's a strange command really, and a difficult command. It's a call for joy. It's a call for joy in the face of hardship and difficulty, what James calls trials of many kinds. It's a strange command because James seems to be commanding an emotional response, which is a strange thing to command, isn't it? And it's a difficult command because joy is not our instinctive response to hardship and trial, is it? And so we need really to think and listen very carefully to what the Apostle is actually commanding us here. And so firstly, we need to see that James assumes that we will meet trials of many kinds. For James' first readers, it would seem that poverty was a trial that many of them were meeting. We're going to see lots of references to the difficulty of their poverty in the letter. It seems too that their poverty was accompanied or maybe even caused by persecution, them being persecuted because they belonged to Jesus. Uh, We read about them being dragged into court. The name of Jesus was being slandered. So that's certainly a trial that James's first readers were facing. But James is thinking more broadly as he thinks about trials because if you, if you look carefully at verse 2, he writes of trials of many kinds. All sorts of various trials will have to be met by the people of God, even by us, in this broken, hostile, rebellious world. And so we could compose our own list, couldn't we, of such trials? In fact, hopefully you've already identified your biggest trial at the moment. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's disappointment in friendships. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's that you hate your job. Maybe it's that you wish you had a job. Maybe it's that you're struggling as a parent. Maybe it's you desperately want to be a parent. Maybe it's marriage tensions. Maybe it's tensions from not being married. Maybe it's financial struggles. Maybe it's health struggles. Maybe it's getting a hard time for being a Christian. Maybe it's just the pressure of circumstances at the moment. 
There are many kinds of trials that we have to undergo in this world, aren't there? And James acknowledges that. He faced them too. Hardships, struggles, trials. And it's great, isn't it, that the, book, the Bible is such a realistic book? God doesn't call us to ignore reality. God doesn't call us to pretend that things are better than they are. You know, Christianity isn't about a struggle-free existence. There will be hardships. There will be trials. There will be struggles. We know that. We experience that day by day. And so with your present trials in mind, listen again to this command from God through his apostle. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Is that a strange command? Is that an impossible command? Notice too that James doesn't say to count the trials themselves as joy. Did you notice that? What we had to count as joy is the opportunity to face them. That's an important difference, don't you think? We don't have to pretend that a trial is good when it isn't. We don't have to pretend that a trial is painless when in fact it is very painful. It's not the trial, it's not the struggle, it's not the hardship that is joy. It's facing it that we are to consider as joy. James is not saying, you know that trial you're facing right now? It's not really that bad. Get over it. James is not saying, it's not really that painful. Stop whining. It's okay. James is not saying that. Although so often that's exactly what we say to each other, isn't it? James is allowing us the freedom to look at our trial fully in the face, if you like, and say, yes, it's terrible. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it causes me great pain and heartache. He is allowing us to do that. But what he is not allowing us to do, he is not allowing us to meet that terrible, difficult, painful trial. He is not allowing us to meet it with despair. He is not allowing us to meet it with no hope. He is not allowing us to meet it with no joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And notice too, he doesn't command happiness, he commands joy. And joy is a much stronger word, isn't it, than happiness? It has much greater depth. And so we need to see that James is doing more there in verse 2 than simply commanding an emotional response to hardship. He's doing much more than that. He's not saying, chin up, stop your crying, put a smile on your face. He's not commanding happiness. He's commanding joy. And you know what? Joy can exist even in the presence of great sadness and pain. It's actually possible to be joyful and be crying at the same time. Because, you see, joy is anchored in a reality that is deeper and better than any present circumstance. The joy that James commands here is anchored in the sovereign goodness of the Lord God himself. The joy that James commands is really an expression of our knowledge of the sovereign goodness of God. And we can see that in the verses that follow. 
Verse 2 again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, the joy that James commands uh, is the fruit of knowing the power and the goodness of the Lord God. Because, you see, God, in his sovereign goodness, promises to be at work within us, even, or perhaps especially, as we face trials of many kinds. He is working within us to bring us to completion and maturity as his children. And you know what? It's a massive building project. Far bigger than that Bunnings building project down the road, okay? It's a massive undertaking. And we know exactly what the goal is. We don't need to guess where God is taking us. It's not like that Bunnings project. I'm desperately keen to know what that takeaway food thing is out on the front, if that's what it is. We don't know what it is. It's a mystery. That's not like it is with God's building project, okay? God has told us he has determined to bring his people to completion and maturity. That's the target. That's the goal, completion and maturity. And you know what? It's what the Apostle Paul describes in another place as being, you ready for it? Conformed to the likeness of Christ Jesus. And you can't get more complete or more mature than that, could you? That's God's blueprint for us, you see. Conformed to the likeness of Christ Jesus. That's his promise to us. His promise to conform us to the likeness of Jesus, to the righteousness of Jesus, to the holiness of Jesus, to the love of Jesus, to the wisdom of Jesus. It's God's building project within, within each one of his saved, precious children. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? God graciously takes us as lost, sinful rebels He brings us to himself through the saving death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus. He adopts us as his children and he begins a glorious, eternal work within us. And you know what? That is what God is doing as we face trials of many kinds. He is bringing us to a point where we will lack nothing. How does it work? Well, James spells it out there for us in verse 3. Facing trials, facing hardships. James describes it there in verse 3 as the testing of our faith. I guess we tend to think of testing as like an exam. You get tested and either you pass or you fail. But that's not actually not the type of testing that James is meaning here. The testing that James is talking about here is more like a proving of our faith, a refining of our faith, a process, a refining that leads to perseverance. Because when you think about it, it's as we face trials and difficulties that we come at those moments, really, to the clearest understanding, the clearest understanding that only God in Christ can save us, that only God in Christ is worthy of our praise and our trust and obedience. Because you know what? The reality is that when life is painless and trouble-free, it's at those times that we can so easily delude ourselves into thinking that we don't really need God all that much, that we're really okay on our own, 
And God is sort of tucked away in a corner of our life and we turn to him just when it's convenient, when there's nothing really else to do. And the reality is, you know, that we need the pain and even the terror of trials and hardships to strip us of that sort of deluded arrogance. We need to be forced to our knees. It's when our plans and our hopes are dashed and disappointed, we need to be reminded clearly and directly that God alone is our Saviour and our Lord. And not those other idols and pseudo-saviours that we turn to so quickly, that we put our faith in, like money or marriage or career or qualifications or big houses or polite children or success in the community or prestige. They're so often the things we turn to and say, they'll get us through. That's what we need to get us through. And they steal our hearts and they're bogus. And it's only when trouble strikes that those pseudo-saviors are exposed and blown away and they are shown to be useless. And our folly in trusting in them is made clear. And all we have left is the Lord who in grace And kindness and powerful goodness demonstrates once more his great worth and glory. Demonstrates that he is all that we need. And he calls forth our trust. He calls forth our thankful faith. And we humble ourselves before him. And we allow him to lift us up. See, that's the testing that James is referring to. And I wonder if you know what I'm talking about. I wonder if you've experienced that, even in part. And maybe you're experiencing it now as you face that trial at the moment. That testing, that purifying, it develops within us perseverance, steadfastness, endurance. As we face trials and our faith is purified, we grow gradually into long-haul Christians. Long-haul Christians. We learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul because we are learning to trust in his faithfulness. We endure trouble with our eyes set upon Christ Jesus. We remain steadfast under difficulty because we've abandoned ourselves into the arms of the one who is both powerful and good. So the testing of our faith develops within us perseverance And the end goal of it all is maturity, perfection, completeness, not lacking anything, conformity to the likeness of Christ. So brothers, you think about all that and can you see the massive difference that makes to the way that we ought to respond to difficulty and hardships and trials? Can you appreciate how sensible really the command of James is there in verse 2? to count it as pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. So the call of the word of God to us this morning, the call of the word of God to you this morning is to endure. The call tonight from the Lord God is, this morning, sorry, is to, is to count facing that trial as joy. But that's hard, isn't it? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, that's easy to say, that's hard to do. And only a fool would say that it wasn't hard because our instinctive response to trials, it's not joy. 
And James recognises that. Like I said before, the Bible is a very realistic book. God knows our struggles, he knows our weaknesses, and he graciously helps us in his word, which is a great thing, isn't it? See, God is taking us to a point in the future where we will lack nothing, but for now in the present we will still lack. And one thing we lack is wisdom. And it's wisdom that we need to respond to trials in the right way. So point two and verse five, let me read. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding faults, and it will be given to him. See, what we need as we face trials and hardships is wisdom, wisdom from God, the wisdom of heaven. In our day, the wise person is the smart person, the brainy person. But in the Bible, the wisdom is much more practical, much more earthy, if you like, and definitely more godly. Wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. Wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. In fact, the beginning of wisdom, according to the Bible, is not intelligence. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, obedience to the Lord, trust in the Lord, submitting to the Lord. Wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. And we need wisdom as we face trials and hardship. We need wisdom to negotiate through them in a successful, godly way. And so how do we get such wisdom? Well, we ask for it. We pray to our generous Heavenly Father and we ask him for the wisdom to live his way in his world. And by his spirit and his word, God will answer our prayer. He will give us the wisdom we need. Perhaps one of the most helpful things about suffering and trial is that they force us to our knees in prayer. As we plead helplessness, as we plead ignorance, as we cast ourselves into the arms of our Heavenly Father, as we call out to him for his help, for his deliverance, for his wisdom. And James assures us here that God will answer such a prayer. He may not take the trial away. He may not remove the hardship. But he will answer your prayer. For God's blueprint is conformity to Christ Jesus. The trial that you're facing right now, I need to ask you, is it driving you into the arms of your heavenly father? Are you casting your anxiety onto him who cares for you? Are you seeking his wisdom that you might know how to live his way in his worlds? Are you asking your heavenly father to help you view it from his perspective? Are you asking him to help you consider it as pure joy? There's another alternative, of course, isn't there? The temptation in the midst of suffering and hardship is to turn away from God, to give up on God, to look elsewhere for help. And really that temptation is at the heart of James' warning in verse 6. Let me read it for us. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. What James is warning there is uh, of there is double-mindedness, divided loyalty, divided devotion. 
It's an issue he'll return to throughout the letter. It was a disease infecting his first readers. It's a disease that continues to threaten us. It's the folly, okay? It's the folly of trying to hold on to God without letting go of the world. It's the pursuit of heavenly wisdom and what James, James later calls earthly, unspiritual wisdom. It's trying to play both sides of the street. It's double-minded when the Lord calls upon single-minded devotion. It's a refusal to devote yourself wholeheartedly to God. It's what James means by doubt. It's not so much an intellectual thing, a mind thing. It's a heart thing. It's a failure to fully entrust yourself to God. And so you see, when we come to God in the midst of trial, asking for wisdom, it's not to be as a backup plan. You know, when all else fails, the extra security blanket on top of all my other efforts. To come to God like that is to receive nothing from him. That's not coming to him in fear and honour. That sort of person is like a wave of the sea, you know, constantly shifting, unstable. That's not the sort of person we are to be. We come to the Lord with single-minded devotion. We entrust ourselves to him. It's all or nothing. And, of course, the Lord God is entirely deserving of nothing less than our all, isn't he? And he is wholly trustworthy. We have nothing to fear from entrusting ourselves completely to him. He is powerful and good. We need wisdom. We need wisdom to see things from God's perspective. And, of course, God's perspective is eternity. And that's where James takes us finally in our passage. Point three, verse 12. Verse 12, he writes, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There's the perspective of wisdom. There is the perspective of joy. It's the perspective of eternity. The trials we face now, you see, are not all that there is. The life that we live now is not all that there is. For those who love God, for those who have entrusted themselves to God, there awaits the crown of life, life to the full, forever the crown there that james has in mind is not the crown of a king but the prize that the athletes were awarded in james day when they competed at the games it was the wreath that they were awarded that they wore on their heads this is the marathon runner entering the stadium after a long hard journey and stepping up onto the podium and receiving the prize receiving the crown and that is our christian life friends a journey long and hard full of trials of many kinds, but with a crown, a prize awaiting all who finish loving the Lord God. Life, full and forever. That is what is awaiting us, to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, perfect and mature and complete, with life forever and full, stretching out endlessly before us. That is what awaits us, you see. And all of our trials, indeed all of our life, it all needs to be viewed from the perspective of that awaiting crown. For the first readers of James, one of the trials they were facing was poverty. And you can see in verse 9 that James wants them to think about that trial from the perspective of eternity, from the perspective of that crown. Look at how James writes it in verse 9. He says, The brother in humble circumstances, poor, ought to take pride in his high position. 
See how it works? He may be materially poor, but he's actually spiritually rich. And even decades of poverty and the immense struggles involved in that, they cannot compare to an eternity of life forever to the full. From an earthly perspective, he is low. But from the perspective of heaven, he is high. He is exalted. And to believe that, to recognize that, will result, of course, in joy. And, of course, the reverse is true too, isn't it? It would be foolish to value too highly comfort here in this life when compared to the life to come. Foolish to value so little when so much is awaiting. And so James there in verse 10 reminds the rich Christian that he should not value his earthly riches too highly, for they will fade. They'll pass away. And so the rich should beware of thinking too highly of themselves simply because they are rich. Folks, the question for us really is, do you value maturity and perfection in Christ more than a trouble-free life? Do you value maturity and perfection in Christ more than a trouble-free life? Is holiness and righteousness and life forever to the full more important to you than comfort now. And you know what? We'll never consider facing trials as joy until we can answer yes sincerely to those questions. And we'll never be able to answer yes to those questions until we can, until we can view this present life from the perspective of forever. So we've got to be wise. The only thing that ultimately counts is the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Promised. Is that not wonderful? He's promised it. And God, of course, always keeps his promises. So, friends, can I ask you that hardship that you are facing right now? Is it hard? Yes. Is it painful? Yes. Would you prefer if it wasn't there? Maybe. For as painful as it is, it's not pointless. For as hard as it is, it's not hopeless. For you have a heavenly father who is both powerful and good. You have a heavenly father who loves you and he has promised you the crown of life forever with him and that hardship you are facing right now is being used by your heavenly father to prepare you for that forever life with him would you prefer if it wasn't there maybe god's word to you this morning about that trial that you're facing right now god's word to you this morning God says to you this morning, brothers and sisters, he says, trust me. God says to you, love me. God says to you, ask me for wisdom. God says to you, set your hope fully on that crown of life. And God says to you, face that trial with joy. How about we pray? 
Would you take a moment to talk to your Heavenly Father yourself? Heavenly Father, we, we're thinking about difficult things this morning. Things that I'm sure uh, for many of us are stirring up emotions. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word and your spirit. And we acknowledge, Father, that we need you to speak to us. We need you to show us and to teach us what is true. And we look to you, Father, to help us. Father, we look to you to help us to trust you, to love you. Father, we ask for your wisdom. Father, we ask that you would help us to set our hope on that crown of life that you've promised those who love you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to face that trial with joy. We long for that day, Father, when we will be conformed to the likeness of Christ Jesus. Help us to set our eyes on him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.